Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in the motorcycle industry right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, our guest is Robbie Peterson, a former racer himself and the father of Moto America Superbike racer, Cam Peterson. This episode is brought to you by Moto America. Moto America is the home of AMA Superbike and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series with some of the best motorcycle racing on two wheels. Rewatch every round of the 2022 series and catch all the action from each race with the Moto America Live Plus video on demand streaming service. Or visit the Moto America YouTube channel for race highlights and original video content. Look for a complete 2023 schedule coming soon at MotoAmerica.com. And be sure to follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for real-time series updates. Well, Dave, it looks like the uh, riding season might be officially over for you there in Ohio, because I I was looking at the weather this morning, and I saw that you were going to get snow. What is up with that? The strange weather continues. Yeah, we're going to wait and see, because actually I was at the racetrack this, this last weekend again, which was great riding with some buddies and uh, most of the tracks are going to continue to be open. So we'll watch the weather, you know, it'll be probably touch and go. And yeah, if if we get snow and real wet and it warms up again, it's, uh, you know, it's back on the track again. So saw a lot of street bikes out over the weekend because we had 60, 70 degree weather. It was pretty nice actually here. How about, uh, how about out your way? It's been amazing. It's been such a beautiful October, probably the best I've, I can recall on record, we've been just like mid seventies all month. Just sun shining, so it's been great. Unfortunately, my Himalayans in the in the shop at the moment getting its first service, and uh, I just found out this morning that they're. I'm like, shouldn't it be done by now? I dropped it off last Thursday, and they're like, well, we had to order a part for the oil change. So I'm like, really, a part for the oil change? <laughs> so yeah, I should get it back hopefully tomorrow, and I'm definitely going to get a couple more rides in because it looks like our weather is going to change this coming Saturday, and then it's going to be like mid-50s the rest of the month. So got to get those rides in while I can. Yeah, it's a good sign that you got your first service. That means you got the miles in. So uh, good on you, and hopefully uh, the weather holds in. You guys can uh, get some more time in the saddle. Yeah, like I said before, I think I'm going to. I'm definitely going to start working on some some heated gear, and I'm uh, kind of just testing some fun different products that I've never used before. Like I'm trying out these new motorcycle-specific earplugs, which I don't know if you've ever used them, but supposedly they're tuned to, to kind of like block out wind noise, but you still are able to hear the engine noises because like when I ride with earplugs, I don't know about you, but I just lose, like I feel like I'm completely disoriented because I can't hear the bike and I'm getting different vibrations. And so I'm interested to see how these things work. They kind of just, they're reusable. They push in and supposedly they let some sound through, but they block about 20 decibels. And so it'll be interesting to see how they work. Yeah, definitely. Report back here after uh, after the trial run. I'd be kind of curious also about uh, what you find out about the best gloves and jackets to 
kind of fend off some of that 50 degree weather. Absolutely. So what'd you think of this, the uh, Red Bull straight rhythm? Did you get a chance to, to catch that this past weekend? It was, man, it was, I thought it was amazing. I wish it would have been televised live. Of course, you know, if you go on YouTube, you wait maybe an hour, you'll find something that somebody uploaded up there, probably pirated. But, you know, I was able to watch it via YouTube and why well, so, such a cool environment at, there at the beach, though. I don't know about what would you think overall? Yeah, it sounded like, uh, you know, just reading some posts of some of the people that attended, it was uh, quite the party vibe. And uh, you can imagine in Huntington Beach on the on the water like that, that you would probably have that kind of a, a setup. But uh, the action on the track was, uh, for my money, was, was worth watching because those guys, you can't deny the talent it takes to go down that straight and, uh, and do that consistently and fast. Just amazing to watch the talent on the track. Yeah, it's so unique too, because I feel like there's some riders that you know, unexpected riders that do really well that we all know have talent, like like a Josh Hansen and a Justin Hill, which who went up against each other and it was it was a great battle. But I tell you, Hansen, I mean, every time he gets on the bike, you're like his body position, his form is always everybody says he just is oozing talent, uh, but he just can't seem to put it together, you know, like for the finals. But he he did make it into the semifinals. And uh let's see, I think he went up against uh was it Roxon? I can't remember who he got if we went up against Marver. Or Roxon, but he ended up losing, and of course Moose Moosegan and Roxon went head to head in the final. And I tell you, uh, you know, like that scrub of Roxon to beat Barsha in the semifinals to me is going to go down as one of those viral moments that we're going to be seeing for years. Him scrubbing and passing him, it was incredible. Yeah, it was all about getting those wheels on the ground. And he did. He he was probably six feet below Barsha on that scrub. Because uh, he couldn't have been a couple feet off the the top of that jump and uh, got his wheels down and driving. And that, that was the difference maker in that run and uh, took, carried him to the finish line. And uh, like I said, these guys just know how to downside a jump. That's the amazing thing about guys like you mentioned, Josh, Josh Hansen, who just seems to have that just innate ability to do that and do it consistently. And I think, uh, honestly... The two guys that won separated themselves from the field, I think Roxon and Mux, Muskin, you know, in the 250 class. Muskin just looks so effortless and smooth. Just a typical French rider, just always got the head in one position and driving. Just uh, just amazing to watch. He just seemed like he had that swagger. Like you could tell for me when I see a rider and just the way that they carry themselves and the way they're speaking and even their shoulders and everything. I mean, you could just tell when they're confident and they're bristling with confidence. And that's the way he was. Like every time he lined up, he was on it. You know, I expected like with, with that scrub from Roxon, I'm like, man, there's no way, you know, Marvin's going to you know beat Roxon with his whoop speed and the way he keeps the bike so low to the ground. But gosh, it was like a different Marv, man. He just was on it. And then I heard, I watched an interview this morning and he's like, yeah, I rode the bike like twice this week. And I'm like, and he's he's one of those guys where it's like I feel like he's primarily a four stroke era guy as opposed to two stroke, and so made it all the more impressive that what he did. So what do you think uh, about the two strokes, Dale? You know they kind of feature that in Red Bull. It's uh, it's been kind of their their thing since they started. And I don't think it's since it started, but they evolved to that. And uh, you know we want to have that debate about two stroke versus four stroke, but just seems like what's the What's the purpose of a two-stroke in our in our world today, in, in in dirt bikes in general? You know, they've got their little niche applications, but other than that, what's what's the role of a two-stroke? Nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, hearing that hearing that sound, you know, you love it, don't you? Yeah. There's nothing yeah. like a gate full of 250 two-strokes or 125 two-strokes hitting the first turn, and I mean, sadly though, my emotional appeal to it is like yes, you know, 
But I think like thinking about it from the business side of it, like I don't really even know if it really makes that much of a difference to the people that go watch the straight rhythm, you know? Yeah. Do they even know the difference? And I was thinking about that because yeah. a lot of the riders today may have never even ridden a two stroke. If they started late in their yeah, late exactly. teens and didn't didn't come up through the minis in the in the eighties, they would have never rode a two stroke probably. So we're yeah. we're dealing with a generation that uh, you know, what we were talking about last week. How are you going to explain to a, uh, a young engineer what clockwise means? Yeah. How are you going to explain to a rider coming up today that just started that uh, started on a four-stroke what a two-stroke is? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's strange. I mean, it's definitely cost savings, you know, like and it's easy to work on, but I don't even think that matters anymore. I just think the new generation doesn't really even cross their mind. Right, right, because they don't know what it means. So therefore, the only thing that exists is what's there in front of them. And So yeah, I wonder, you know, they've got their niches, you know, you've got... Uh, the off-road guys swear by the 300s. Yeah. You know, those, that, that is a killer machine. If you've ever ridden one, they are so much fun. I think if you take the competitive element out of it, you know, and just purely fun, that's another place with a two-stroke because it's just yeah. flick it around. You know. I was just thinking about it. I was at the track yesterday and there's a few guys out there still riding them and, you know, hardcore guys that won't ever leave them. And uh, then there's the rest of us, right? I've fully committed. I'm all in on four strokes. <laughs> I, I love it. And uh, it's just interesting to watch. And uh Kind of wonder what the young kids think too. I should probably ask them some questions. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive when you think about it because a lot of the older guys are the ones riding the two strokes. And I'm like, you're working twice as hard. <laughs> yeah, know? I know. I was thinking about that too. <laughs> I, I think I let somebody who rides a two stroke or rode, he rode my bike yesterday and he goes, wow. He goes, is this what I'm missing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, dude, why work so hard? I'm at my age. I won't say what my, my age is, but <laughs> at my age, this is, uh, this is way easier to ride, dude. And you can go, Faster, not not just as fast. You'll go faster. My experience on four strokes, which isn't that much, is that I feel like the slower I go, the faster I go. In that, because you just want to rev those things because they'll rev to the moon. You know, you're not used to that on a two stroke. Two stroke, you just got everything perfect. You know, it's just don't let the bike bog down. Whatever. You know, it's just, there was a jump at uh, Trevor's yesterday that you had to nail this corner just right. Even on the four stroke, you had to hit. You had to come out smooth. Seat bounce this jump. It was probably about a 25-foot gap. It wasn't that big. But, God, on a two-stroke, you had to be letter perfect every lap to clear it. And uh, I don't know how those guys could do it. Most of them couldn't. Yeah. You know, it's just then they're working so much harder to uh, to get around the track. I miss that, but I don't miss it. Yeah. Like, it's cool. Like, I, I, I appreciate and respect it because I know how difficult. Like, I think about a section at, at uh, Troy, you know, like Kenworth, these where, like, there's that dirty dozen where you – jump three out of the corner like it was so tight and we would just barely make it on a two-stroke right imagine how easy that would be on a four-stroke now be like nothing it is nothing i mean just to come out of a corner and gap something 30 yeah. feet it's a piece of cake second gear boom bong i'm gone you know it's so easy now yeah 125 two-stroke you're just cobbed as hard as you can man, hit the, per- hit, <laughs> yeah. hit the corner and perfect pray. just grab second perfect you know barely make it <laughs> yeah and hopefully you get the attitude of the bike right you don't screw that up yep. you know it's just so much easier now i just one of those observations i had at the track yesterday was thinking about these young kids that uh, may have never ridden a two-stroke yeah i also wonder like I mean, for a guy like Roxon, it's probably not as bad because at least they're riding the same frame and everything, the geometry, the bikes. They're just yeah. stuffing a two, two-stroke two motor in it, right? In some case, well, not the YZ he was riding, but that's all modern, though. He also grew up on the minis. I mean, he came through two-strokes, so he understands the bikes. He, I think he rode the Honda two-stroke at Red Bull a couple years ago. They built him a CR250. Oh, yeah. 
guys at that level, it's that that's a whole nother talent. They just understand power and speed. And, yep. Confidence is a huge thing in our sport, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you feel off at all, like I remember the telling my mom this story and because she wasn't there it was a indoor arena race that we did tiny little podunk arena and uh it was a cold winter race so it was cold you know bikes are always running lean my dad was messing with the jetting and he jetted it way too lean so i go off some double jump sit jump it and i go over the bars i step off in midair and i'm like i thought i was going to pull it off i was like running down the downside of this jump but then my feet just couldn't keep up and I just face planted and just destroyed my like my chest and my upper like towards my neck. And oh. just I was messed up for like three weeks after that. But I was so pissed. My dad's like officially yard sailed it. Yeah. Like he didn't tell me either. He's like, Oh yeah, I, I leaned it out. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for a big old bog off the jump. I think your observation about Marvin was dead on. Doesn't matter if he's on two stroke or four stroke, you know, he just yeah. He just knows what the bike's going to do and he's got such confidence. Yeah, I just started riding this a couple of days ago, <laughs> you know, and I went out here and won it. So <laughs> that just blows my mind. Marvin, he's undefeated in straight in straight rhythm and uh, that, that's just an amazing stat for That seems unfathomable, that right? It just seems it just doesn't yeah. seem possible, but when you think about his riding style and the fact that he's a supercross only rider now in his contract, he's that's the type of obstacle he's just just so smooth and good at and uh he proved it and uh i was kind of blown away and i think uh you were too is this carson brown taking the win on uh in the 125 class he just he just looks smooth and consistent but one interesting fact i saw that uh leading up to the final or actually as the event unfolded is he brought two bikes to the event he brought a 125 and a 150 cc and he ultimately settled on the 150 i guess uh Ain't no replacement for displacement, so yeah. I think that was probably a wise move on his part. For sure. No, I, I was super impressed with him. He's just one of those guys where, like, he's another one of those guys that has so much talent. You know, he can ride just about any bike. If you follow his social media, like his Instagram, he's always doing fun videos of him and riding in his backyard and, like, a complete rainstorm. You know, like, one of my favorite videos of him is ripping, like, an old KDX 200, jumping all the jumps, you know, just wide open, pinned on the thing. And so he's always fun to watch. And so it's real. It's been cool for him lately to one win the uh, 2022 Pit Bike of Nations, and then now he wins his straight rhythm, and he's got World Supercross going on. So he's he's been a super busy man, and I think he's always been like as we've we've said, he's been always been a talented guy, and it's just good to see him doing really well. And I hope he carries it into the you know the Supercross season if he ends up doing the U.S. Supercross season. Yeah, I agree. I like to see him at this next round. It's coming up this weekend, World Supercross in uh, Melbourne, Australia. So. Uh... That'll be the second race and final event for that series. And uh, I imagine Roxon's on the airplane also, and uh, they're all heading over there right now. Yep, that's coming up. And uh, it's been nice to have some of these off-season races because, you know, Supercross is, you know, the 2023 Supercross season is not that far away. In fact, I just saw where, like, uh, for our listeners out there, the tickets are now on sale for that 2023 Monster Energy AMA Supercross season. And so you can go to Supercross Live and buy those now. And of course, round one is January 7th. So it's it's not that far away. It's at, at its traditional uh, Angel Stadium uh, start in uh, Anaheim, California. So looking forward to that. And uh, as you said, the World Supercross coming up. But I, I had a couple more observations to go back to the straight rhythm, though, that I wanted to kind of bring up that I thought were were fun. But uh, how about Nico Easy coming back out of nowhere? I mean, this guy's had a rough time in his life. And he actually beat Barsha in one of his races. So Barsha advanced with a two 
you know, two wins over one, but wow, where, where did he come from? Like all of a sudden Nico Izzy is, is racing. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he spent some time in, in jail and, uh, somebody like, he's had a rough time in his life. So good to see him back and, you know, racing an event like this. Yeah. I'd like to see this be a springboard for Nico to get back on the motocross track and kind of resurrect his career. Cause a lot of people felt it was cut short after what he went through. Um, yeah. so to see a guy bring himself back, everybody loves a comeback story. And uh, he was definitely one of the most talented guys on that Suzuki team back in the day. So I'd love to see him uh, kind of turn it around. And maybe this is a springboard, you know, this this kind of success could possibly lead to other things, possibly a ride, maybe some help for the season. You never know. Yeah, supposedly he's, you know, committed to a full Supercross season next year. At least that's what I read. And, you know, we'll see if he shows up. But good on him. Like you said, everybody wants to, everybody likes to see a good uh you know, comeback story. So one other last observation before we wrap up and get on to our interview with Robbie Peterson today. Um, how about O'Neill gear? We're like, what what happened with O'Neill gear? All of a sudden they have some money because Marv wins, just signed a deal with O'Neill gear. Josh Faris finished second and Derek Kelly was third, all wearing O'Neill gear. And on top of that, I saw where they just signed uh, HRC, new HRC signee Colt Nichols. So all of a sudden, it seems like O'Neill is making a comeback. Kind of an old school brand, I think, for you and I back in the day. I know in the 80s, yeah. that was that was one of the brands to be in. And uh, this last uh, race season, Supercross and, and Motocross, I think they only had Dean Wilson. Or if the other riders were out there, I didn't notice him. But cool story. I, I'm, I've always been a fan of the, of the gear. You know, uh, long time, privately owned business and uh, just been in it for a long, long time. It's It's cool to see. Yeah, it's one of the few brands I feel like left that hasn't been scooped up by an outside, you know, some outside capital. So definitely cool to see, like you said, a lot of history there. And uh, I have a feeling that maybe um, Dean Wilson signing with another team, because I think that probably freed up some O'Neill money right there since he's now wearing fly. And so that might be some of it, but yeah, good for them. Great to see. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I guess I have for this week, probably about time to get on to our our interview for this week, which I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Robbie Peterson seems like a guy with a lot of history and just a lot of, you know, impressive stats about him that I saw when I was doing my research. So looking forward to speaking with him here in a moment. Yeah. Long time, old school racer who moved to the USA. So uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to talking to him and learning his story. All right, we'd like to welcome to Pit Pass Moto today, Robbie Peterson. Uh, he is a retired racer, father to Cam Peterson, also crew chief for the Vision Wheels M4 X-Star Suzuki Super Sport rider, Tyler Scott. Robbie, we really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today, and you gotta be excited about your season with Tyler. Just uh, the young man was spectacular this year. No, thank you, Dad. Thanks for having me on. Really, um, you know, when, when I got into it with Tyler, I didn't know what to expect. Obviously, he's really young. And um, the truth is, he used to compete against Ben Glotty in the Junior Cup. And Ben Glotty used to work with us at American Supercamp. So I was kind of like a Ben Glotty fan, you know, and then got working with Tyler. And from the first race at Atlanta, it was like, you know, I could just see something in this kid in his eyes and his demeanor. And obviously, he's got unreal skills. So built up a really good relationship, became a fan of his, honest truth, you know, and... Uh, 
just had a great time working with him. For sure. And you guys had a breakthrough at, uh, at Moto America. I mean, what, uh, what kind of led up to that uh, win in uh, Wisconsin? I mean, was it just everything kind of came together or just uh, systematic uh, preparation and that led up to, uh, to that weekend? We did a good test at Pittsburgh just before that and found a little bit of stuff. So keep in mind, he had never seen a 600, let alone a 750, until we, the first race at Atlanta, we showed up there. We got our bike on the Thursday. He had never even seen it. So Atlanta was a big learning curve. We did a test on the 750 at Barber, and straight off, he was quick. Did some more stuff. VIR, I thought he was really impressive. A test at Pittsburgh, really impressive. And like you said, everything just kind of clicked at Road America. There's no question that track kind of suited our bike. And then we, we made some changes. We've got a big picture. Obviously, we're trying to make this thing better and better. And uh, from the ridge onwards, we actually struggled a little bit with some setup stuff, more with electronics and clutch setup. And so the ridge, Laguna weren't great. You know, you got reasonable results. I made a couple of bad choices with tire choice at the ridge. We went for the soft and it just didn't last. And then, you know, I think he came back into his own again. New Jersey was strong. Barber was strong. So once again, Barber was a little bit of a bad tire choice for, and that was, that was a joint choice. You know, we, we discussed that and. We made a bad tire choice probably in race one. But he, I try and take every positive away. And, and even when he was struggling a little bit, um, like New Jersey, for instance, he was really struggling through sector four, I think it was. But sector one, two, three, he was unreal, you know. So wherever we can, we just try and take some positives. And um, I think going forward, he's going to have a better base to start off with, obviously, for next year. And, and I think he can be consistently running up front. So kind of help us understand, I know they allowed the 750 with some modifications in that class, which I thought was great because it really helps grow the class and bring other riders into it. What was, obviously you made the decision because you've, you had good success in testing and it led to that, but uh, what are some of the modifications that they perform to allow the 750 in the super sport class? Well, the main thing is that they converted it to fly-by-wire so that they can basically control our throttle openings. So... Although Tyler might be going to 100% or any rider on the 750, might be going to 100% on the throttle, it's limiting how much the blades will actually open. So all we're doing is, all they're doing is basically reducing the horsepower. Um, so the goal is obviously to, to create parity <laughs> between all the bikes. So a simple way to look at it is, well, we'll probably be able to do the same job on, on the 600, you know, because the bikes effectively are going to be the same. But for, I guess from a marketing point of view and going forward, it just kind of makes sense. People don't really want to ride 600s anymore. So I think marketing the 750 was just better for everybody, better for the sport. Um, the 750 might have a couple of advantages in some areas. And at the moment, it's got some disadvantages, which we're working on. But, you know, the sanction, Motor America, the FIM, they keep a real close eye. I mean, they've got some very clever algorithms in terms of making sure that nobody has too much of an advantage. And uh, I'm not very good with IT in general or technology, but I'm really impressed with their way of monitoring performance on all the bikes. You know, they download our data all the time. They're keeping an eye on rate of acceleration and so on. And uh, I think they've got it right. Yeah, it's almost like they're bringing a little bit of that Formula One technology aspect into it. And it definitely keeps it interesting, that's for sure. One of the things I wanted to ask you um, your position in the paddock. I feel like you have a unique perspective, as we've kind of talked about a little bit already. You're, you know, the father of 
Cam Peterson, who rides for the Fresh and Lean Yamaha team, and you're a crew chief, you're a former racer yourself. Is it tough to kind of separate the two of being a crew chief and a father to a, a professional racer? It's actually not, Dale. Um, so probably up until about 2020 or 2019, I'd probably watched almost every single lap that Cameron had done on a motorcycle since he was five years old. And, and the honest truth, it just got harder and harder. You know, as the stakes got sort of higher, it was seriously nerve-wracking for me to the point, you know, I was so desperate for him just to get some kind of opportunity. I've always believed that he had incredible talent. And we had a bit of a rough ride. You know, we, we got to this country in 2015 and some ups and downs. And at one stage, he was done. Probably at the end of 2019, there were no options. It was like, he doesn't have a ride. I've got no more money to pay for a ride for him. And, and a chance meeting, we just happened to go to the, the uh, San Diego Supercross. And by some miracle, Chris Ulrich was sitting behind me. We get into a discussion and he goes, so what's Ken doing? I said, mm, Chris, at the moment, I think he's done, you know. So a minute later, I get this tap on my shoulder and it's, Chris, you need to get a hold of this guy, George Nassani from Altus. That chance meeting led to where Cam is right now. So what I'm trying to get at, it's so much better for me now to have this big distraction. I don't want to call it a, a distraction, but at the racetrack, I hardly get to even watch Cam. Very, very solid. You know, like most of the time, I'll get back on Monday and watch all the racing on, on the Live Plus. You know, Tyler will come in and we're just planning for the next session and debriefs and looking at data and, you know, you know the deal. So it's just nice to know that Cam is in the best possible hands. I mean, I, we couldn't wish for him to be in a, in a better situation than he is right now. And for myself, I'm really enjoying my, my program. So, um, it's, it's just all worked out. Yeah, I mean that to me just makes it all the more impressive. Like it, it looks it's a story of perseverance from from what I'm seeing. Because I remember reading that story you talked about where Cam was ready to, you know, walk away. You know, and and a lot of it was to do with the financial burden. Yeah. And so, wow, what a what a story of perseverance, and especially coming from Africa. You know, even even more difficult coming to the states to race. And speaking of that, I'd love to know hear more about the a family from a Zimbabwean and South African family of, of motorcycle racers. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, Dad, we, my playground as a kid was the racetracks. My dad was like the chairman of the, so Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia. He was like kind of a, in charge of the, the federation there. And I mean, we had some big, big names, late fifties, early sixties, a guy, Ray Am, Jim Redmond, Gary Hocking, and they were all family friends pretty much, you know. So my first ride on a motorcycle, I think I was three months old, at the beginning of 1962, Gary Hawking, who was the 1961 world champion, put me on the tank on his factory MV and did a lap around the racetrack. And I was three months old, you know. So just a culture. I had three brothers who all raced. I had an older cousin who went and raced in Europe, late 60s. And um it was just what we were going to do. We were going to race motorcycles. Then we got sanctioned. The country kind of fell into hard times, you know, and, and uh, there was a war going on and, and we got sanctioned. So racing almost died, but I was going to be a road racer. Come hell or high water, I was going to be a road racer. I mean, I was 16 years old at school telling my friends, I'm going to be a South African champion. Now, for most people, that there was a huge difference between Rhodesia and South Africa. South Africa was like almost, for us, almost like a world championship. And, uh, and I'm going to race it internationally. And honestly, my friends used to laugh at me, like, what's this guy thinking, you know? And then, uh, we weren't allowed to emigrate from the country until we had done military service. Did my military service, went south to South Africa, started racing. By that stage, my brothers were really well established there anyway and, and kind of winning races and championships and the ball started rolling. And, uh, 
click pretty quick. I won a championship within about two years and always wanted to race. Obviously, World Championship was our goal. I mean, as a kid, I used to read Cycle News or Cycle Weekly, whatever it was called. And I knew all the names, Agostini, Fori, Ivy, whoever, you know. And then later on, obviously, Kenny Roberts. Kenny was probably my first real hero hero. It's like, man, this Kenny Roberts, he's incredible. So um, I couldn't go to Europe because we couldn't get a license. So we, as, as a South African competitor with apartheid and stuff, we, we couldn't get licenses to come in Europe. So got welcomed in America. Cork Ballington at that stage was racing over here. And Cork kind of gave me an opportunity to come over and ride at his spare 250 and loved it. From the first time I stepped out of the airport at Daytona, I was like, this is where I want to be. And um, had a reasonable career, I think, in, in, in America. You know, a few, few sort of good races and, and obviously riding for, then getting to ride for Kenny Roberts, who was my absolute hero, was just surreal. Just like, how can this be happening? You know, so um, it, it's a bit of a fairy tale. It truly is. I mean, um, you know, just a simple kid. You know, I was just a simple kid who, had no idea what the wild, wide world was about, but growing up in, in a little isolated country in the middle of Africa, I wanted to be an international motorcycle racer. And eventually, I mean, that pretty much sent you around the world, I, I would say. I mean, I've, I've, set, I've seen some interviews and read some things that uh, you've even spent some time in Malaysia, in Indonesia racing. And uh, I wanted to kind of ask your opinion about that region in, in particular, because you did spend some time there. I think you managed some race teams there. I did, Dave. So, as I said, I got to race for Kenny on the Marlborough team. Then Marlborough pulled out at the end of 91 and things kind of went downhill. So, I rode for a private team in 92 and, and didn't really ride. I thought I was just riding badly, you know, but it came, it turned out later on the season, I found out my bike actually wasn't that great. Long story, in 92, I thought I had a pretty good option in, in, in America to ride 250 and maybe possibly a superbike as well. Went back to South Africa on holiday and Chuck Axton, who used to manage all Kenny's affairs, calls me and he goes, look, Kenny thinks you should give up racing and come manage the Kenny was starting the, the team in Spain. Kenny Jr. was going over there and, uh, you know, he had some big ideas about developing teams and the riding school and so on. So I wasn't really ready to give up. But next thing, January of 93, I was in Spain setting up a team for Kenny to compete in the Spanish domestic series with, with Kenny Jr. We then took on Sete Gibbonau as well, which is a, another story which I think you might find intriguing. I mean, I got to Spain and I didn't know anybody, like literally no one. So somebody had said to me, hey, there's this kid, Sete Gibbonau, he speaks really good English and he'll help you out. So I get there, I call up Sete. He, he wasn't racing at that stage, a little bit like Cam. You know, he was Senior Bilto from Bultaco's grandson, but they were also struggling a little bit and Sete just didn't have anything going on. So I called him up. He helped me find a workshop, get staff and all that kind of stuff. And we were painting the workshop one day, about three weeks before the first race. And he's helping me paint the workshop. And Kenny calls me up and he goes, you know, Marlborough kind of want a Spanish rider. And I'd watch Sete. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I watched him playing around on the scooters that we used to use <laughs> bombing around the streets of, of uh, Sitges and Spain on it. And I said to Kenny, well, what about Sete? Let's just give Sete a go, you know? So that's, that's a little bit of a cam story. That's the San Diego Supercross. Seto was helping me paint the wall in, in, uh, the, the, in the workshop. And a couple of years later, he's riding as Valentino Rossi, you know. So got to Spain, set up that deal. Um, it was fun. It was like a little racing community in the place we were living in. And, and Norik Arbe lived there and Randy Mamola and a whole bunch of other guys, you know. That was 93. 94, Kenny started talking about setting up the riding school in Spain. And that was sort of my responsibility in 95. 
So we got that going, but I had a pretty serious back injury. I, I fractured my back really badly at the first camp. Marlborough wanted to really promote racing in Southeast Asia. So they brought a group of uh, Malaysians through and I tipped off and one of the guys rode into me and broke my back. And I was lying in hospital and I was like, you know, I want to go home. I just want to go fishing and hopefully I can play golf <laughs> one day. And so we packed up and went back to Africa. So Cam was born in Spain in uh, 94 and we went back to Zimbabwe in 95. But at the same time, Kenny was now setting up another deal with Marlborough in Southeast Asia to run what they call the ASEAN series. And uh, it was similar to the Spanish thing. You know, okay, well, off you go to Kuala Lumpur and go and set up a team for us. So I landed in KL, didn't know anybody, made some contacts. And next thing we had, uh, we had this race team and might be one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. It was only two years, but the Asian economy took a huge end of 97, I think. It was dead. We, we had big plans. Marlborough were going to have this whole team, like a, a nursery for them in Europe, European Championship, onto MotoGP and so on. By the end of 98, it was dead. The economy took that much of a hit. So off I went, back to, back to Zimbabwe, you know. And uh, at that stage, I had not raced for a long time, since 92. So Yamaha in South Africa called me up in 98 and go, hey, why don't you come and have a ride on one of our bikes? And at that stage, it was all just 600s. Everything was 600 racing in South Africa and got back on. I think I was 37, maybe, something like that. And didn't go bad. And then got hooked again and had a really good sort of second career back in South Africa. It was strong. Probably, probably one of the strongest domestic series I've ever seen in the world at that stage. You know, a lot of money, a lot of manufacturer support, good level of rider, riders and so on. So I had another little sort of encore to my career before a motocross crash. I used to train quite a bit on motocross and I wasn't very good, but I just thought it was great training. And a guy jumped on top of me and destroyed my shoulder. So that was the end of the racing. As can happen to a lot of us, I think, unfortunately, and that is a reality of the sport. But uh, I think they went to you because you you had that experience and knowledge and, and you could start up a team from scratch, it seems like, out of thin air. But uh, I have this theory that uh, each region of the world has its turn for top riders. And you mentioned Spain, spending time there with the top riders. And eventually Spain became the powerhouse in all forms of uh, road racing, it seems like. And now that they've moved MotoGPs to Malaysia and, and uh, Indonesia, and they've taken Superbike there, there's kind of an underground movement again. It seems like it's growing out of that region. Is it possible that we're going to see somebody on the world stage from that region coming out of Indonesia? Do you think that's possible? So the whole Spanish thing really did start uh, with a guy, Jaime Agasuari, I think from Solo Motor Magazine. And him and he convinced Kenny to get involved. And, and his idea was they wanted to create MotoGP stars. I mean, Spain had a lot of 125 and 50 stars, Angel Nieto and so on. But they wanted to dominate the world for the benefit of their market. You know, they just thought it would help, help the domestic market, help sell, sell motorcycles. Malaysia had a similar, through Marlborough, honestly, Marlborough were the driving force behind a lot of this. And then Petronas as well. The difference was they, they were able to create all these nurseries, which is just so difficult in this country, in America. You know, America is just so big and vast, and I think it's just hard to coordinate a concerted effort to groom our talent in this country. You know, there's, there's some kids in, in the New Jersey area that are great, and a couple in Southern California and all over the show. But like I said, to have some kind of concerted effort to groom our young talent. Now, I'm going back to South Africa. We can't, we've got Brad and Darren Binder. We've got... Sheridan Marais, who finished second at the Baldor a little while ago, a guy called Stephen Odendahl, who won the Baldor. 
And they came from a little nursery as well. Some guy created a CBR 150 class. The bikes cost nothing. They were really strict on keeping them all standard. So like you said, it, it does kind of seem to go from area to area, you know, but I think Spain and Italy right now, they, it's going to be hard to beat those guys. They are so well established. They've got such a nursery system bringing the kids through. It's going to be hard to ever beat those guys. Before we finish today's episode, first we have a word from our sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So kind of change of direction, I actually back to what you're talking about with the Marlboro Yamaha that you rode for Kenny Roberts. I have to ask, what was that beast like? Because I think that was the 502 stroke back then. And I think you were teammates with Rich Oliver. And that was during that period when there's that weird uh, Weera slash Formula USA run what you brung format. Honestly, the first time I rode that thing was actually at Indy, not 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 at the Speedway, whatever the little track, Indian IRP, whatever it used to be called, and um, it was an eye opener. I was, I'd only ever really ridden two fifty two strokes and some superbike stuff, you know. And when I jumped on that thing, it, it was an eye opener. I remember coming out of the, there's this quick third right hand corner, like at the back of the track, and a thing was just wheeling and getting out of control. I obviously never rode it at the level that Wayne Eddie. Kevin Schwantz, all those kind of guys rode it. You know, you could ride it two seconds off the pace. That thing was really comfortable to ride. That extra second was like, oh, hang on, this thing's becoming a beast. And the honest truth, I don't even know how Wayne and the guy, I don't know how they rode those things the way they did. You know, it's it was, I didn't have that in me. <laughs> Every time I sat on that bike, even if I wasn't moving, just sitting in the pits, you just got this feeling like this is the best thing in the world. And uh, it's something that's, that I'll obviously always be grateful for. And I'd, honestly, I'd sort of forgotten about that. It was almost like a different part of my life, you know. It was just that it really happened. And only when I came back to the States in 2010, I was Ben Bostrom's crew chief in 2010. And uh, used to bump into people, oh, yeah, we remember you from that 500. And then it sort of conjured up all those memories. And it was good times. Really, really lucky. Yeah, yeah and then you have you know, the uh, Laguna Seca 91 USGP, where I saw this really cool photo, kind of an iconic looking photo from Henry Ray Abrams of you and Wayne Rainey walking together at that USGP. And I think I saw where you finished 12th and earned points. So, I mean, that's got to be a pretty special feeling too, because how many people can say they earned points in a MotoGP? <laughs> it was a tough weekend, Dale. That's the honest truth. We had tested there a little bit before, uh, probably about two or three weeks before the event. And Rich and I were going, you know, we we weren't in Wayne and, and Kevin's league, but I could run with like one Gariga and, and it's a long story, but when we got back for the race and for whatever reason, they gave us the worst tires you could imagine. We got production superbike tires to use. So there were like four grades of tires. The grade A for Wayne, Kevin Schwanz, um, and whoever the team, Kaczynski. And then there was a grade B tire, which was like Gariga, Doug Chandler. Grade three, which was a privateers, I think Eddie Laycock, and we were on production superbike tires. And it was a miserable event. That's the honest truth thing. And I had some bike issues, but I actually led Doug Chandler for maybe three or four laps. And so once again, just trying to take some positives out of it, you know, walked away going, okay, well, great experience. But 
just one of those what ifs, you know, if, if the bike had been running and good tires, I think maybe seventh, eighth, ninth was on the cards. So one more two-part question here before we start wrapping up here for this episode is, is what are your thoughts on the, the level of competition right now in Moto America? And uh, what's next for Robbie Peterson going into 2023? Like you said earlier, Moto America have done a remarkable job in this country, honestly. And, and I'm not saying that because they're friends of mine. Every time I go to an event, it's so well run. They've got the best intentions. They've tried so hard. Without the manufacturer support, it's always going to be an uphill battle for them. So the level of competition, we don't have the depth. I mean, we can't kid ourselves. We don't have the depth of BSB World Superbike, you know. And, and obviously, we had high hopes for Jake Gagne going over to Portugal and going, okay, well, let's see. On the face of it, the results were horribly disappointing. You know, when you look, Jake was like 15th and 17th. and then, But then you start looking at top speeds. And I'm going, well, Top Rack did 317 Ks an hour and Jake did sorry, 319, and, and Jake did like high 290s. So his bike was like 19 kilometers an hour slower than Top Rex. What I'm trying to get at, I think Jake Gagne right now, given a perfect opportunity in Europe, can shine. I've got no doubt in my mind. I think Cam, obviously I'm biased. I think Cam, Matthew Scalds, um, obviously, and Petrucci came over here and didn't set the world on fire. You know, I mean, he, he did okay. And same with Loris Baz. Loris Baz went back to Europe at the end of last year and got on the podium. First race back, World Superbike. So it's the same story. I think our top four or five guys are great. And then there's some guys sitting in the wings who I wish were still on bikes, you know, JD Beach and, and there's a few others, uh, Carl Wyman. But there's some kids coming up. You know, I work with Danny Walker at American Supercamp and I get to see some of the, we work with the mini cup kids and man, there, there's some talent coming up. So I think that there's some hope. You know, I still believe Garrett Gerloff, I, I think once again, given that there was some stuff that went on last year, which was unfortunate, but I don't think we've seen the end of Garrett. I, I think we're going to see some good stuff from him still. And I'm 60 years old, so I've forgotten what the second part of the question was. I was just going to say, what, what's, uh, what's next for, for Robbie Peterson going into 2023? What's, what's on the agenda going forward? No, we just, we just did the weekend at uh, Daytona with, with Tyler. Um, I'm really hoping to keep that going. You know, I still work with American Supercamp. Probably just a little bit more of the same. You know, I'd, I'd like to maybe um, just get a little bit more involved with Tyler in terms of like the rider coach side of it. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully a little bit more of the same for next year. Well, we look forward to following your your path going into next year. And we welcome you to come back on because we could talk for hours there's so many good stories that you have and so much history there. And But at this time, though, if you want to uh, give a shout out to any websites or social media followings, places people can find you on the on the webs and, and contact you. We've got a family Facebook page because, as, as I mentioned to you, and I had uh, three brothers who were all South African champions. And my one brother rode in Europe. He actually rode for the factory Suzuki team. So I think it's called like South African Racing Peterson Saga, a Facebook page. And there, there's some good stories in there. Um, but that's pretty much it. Eh? Yeah, I tend to keep a fairly low profile. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your time today, Robbie, and uh, so much history, like I said, and, and great stories there. So we just really appreciate your time today. No, thank you, Dale. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. this episode make sure to follow pit pass moto on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode if you have a moment please rate and review our show we'd really appreciate it you can also follow us on twitter facebook and instagram 
and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog, listen to past episodes, and purchase your own Pit Pass Moto swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson and the production team at Wessler Media. I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Sulecki. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.